growing up near Boston, there was one city in particular that stood out to many of us. In fact, we sang a little song about this city, and it went kind of like this. When Lynn, city of sin, you don't go out like you went in. It's proverbial throughout New England. I mean, and most everybody knows it. In fact, I was reading a novel by someone who lives in Boston recently, and uh, they ended up mentioning that very same little song. And uh, yeah, I'd never been to Lynn. I think I just drove through. I'd never stopped, didn't get out my doors. So I came out <laughs> like I went in, but uh, apparently not everybody does. So, but nonetheless... We see Sodom here and Gomorrah, and we find that Lot will not come out like he went in. Not only does he slowly go in and quickly go out, but also we find that his character has changed in the midst of his time uh, while he is in Sodom. The big idea this morning, however, is that Jesus delivers those who believe from God's just judgment on sin. And we're going to develop this in in three sort of ways this morning. The first part of that is that God eventually brings judgment upon sin. I like that for a post-Christmas sermon, huh? And yet, that's really the message of, of, of Christmas. He is Jesus. God saves. From what? From sin and his wrath. So this ties in very well, actually. Uh, most people, as we, as they tend to look at the Old Testament in particular, act as if God is somehow schizophrenic, like there's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God, and the one in the Old Testament is very mean and horrible and does all of these nasty things to people that they really don't deserve. And yet what we find here in Genesis is that Moses has, for a number of chapters, made great pains to reveal the fact that the judgment that comes upon Sodom and Gomorrah is well-deserved. Even the first time we hear about it, it mentions this was before it was destroyed because of its great wickedness. Uh, in the pre- previous chapters, when, when God is talking to Abraham about what he's about to do, he mentions that the cries against this city have risen to his ears. And so this is not something God does on a whim. It's not like, what will I do today? I guess I'll just ruin a city. Okay? He has been patient with this city. Very patient. And we'll see his patience revealed again throughout this text. It is just and it is deserved as this text sort of lays out before us. And part of that is that these two angels have been sent to investigate the cries that have come up to God's ears about, against this city. And so they arrive at the city gate to find Lot, which is a little surprising because the last time we found Lot, he was living outside of the city. And now we discover that he has since moved into the city. That's why I said he, he came in slowly. First, he kind of camped outside for a while, but now he's in the city. And apparently, because he's sitting at the gate, he has risen to a a form of prominence within this town. And he is there, essentially, as a judge to to see who comes in and to protect them, in a way. So, knowing the wickedness of the city in which he lives, Lot presses them to stay at his house. He, he's offering hospitality to them, and they're saying, oh, no, no, we'll be fine. We'll hang out in the square. But he presses them, it says. He's sort of like the telemarketer who won't let you get a word in edgewise. He's like one of those guys. Or even worse, if you've ever been at a timeshare deal, 
Oh, we have, we have a horror story someday. Um, I, it's too long to tell now, but the, the pressure, the pressure to, to kind of do this. And he's basically pressuring them because he knows if they remain outside of his home, horrible things will happen to them. And so he presses and eventually they relent and they go and stay with him. And what happens is, is sort of almost something out of a, a scary movie is that the men of the city, and it says both young and old, and it says from all parts of the city, Okay, so we, we can't kind of write this, what's going to happen off as sort of, well, that's only from the people on the wrong side of the tracks. In Sodom, everybody was from the wrong side of the tracks. We can't say it's just those young people today, you know, they just don't have any respect for anything. Because the text says it was the young and the old. Apparently the only people who lived, men who lived in the city who were exempt from being outside of Lot's door were Lot, and the two men who were betrothed to his daughters, because he finds them elsewhere. But nonetheless, this is not a couple of people. This is a whole mass of people who are outside, pounding and crying for Lot to surrender the men. That, as the, the Hebrew says, that they might know them. Okay? There is a great sin that they want to commit with these men. And Lot calls it what, he, what it is. He says that do not do this wicked thing. He, he knows that it is wicked. He has a sense of morality. He knows that this violates that sense of morality. He calls it what it is. And what happens is instead of them repenting, saying, oh boy, yeah, you know, we hadn't really thought about it that way, they say, uh-uh, we'll do worse to you. And so their hearts are hardened in their sin. They're going to press forward regardless of the obstacles that they experience. They are going to give, if they, as long as they can uh, help it, they're going to give an outlet to their lusts. And so we see that the outcry was true. Not only this sin, but Scripture records many other sins that were committed by the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Isaiah chapter 1, Jeremiah 23, in Ezekiel 16, we find uh, all kinds of sins from exploitation and oppression of people to other kinds of sexual sins. Uh, They are numerous. And so what happens here is just one final, last, unrestrained, horrible thing. But they committed a great number of sins. So it's not just this one that they are judged for, but many that they are judged for. It is then that the angels reveal that they have been sent here for a purpose, and it is a horrible purpose. They are to destroy this city. God's judgment is about to descend upon this city and all of its people, and it's even going to spread out into the plains. Judgment Day has come for Sodom and Gomorrah. This is an intrusion, so to speak, of the great last day when Jesus returns. Well, this is, this is sort of like a foretaste of that, a foreshadowing of that great and horrible day uh, when the wrath of God is poured out upon sinners. And so it is going to be destroyed. But what's interesting is that these men, these angels, I, I love the Hebrew here, because remember, he was pressing them to go into his house. You have the wicked men pressing Lot to get into his house and get those men out. But here we also have the angels having to press Lot to get out. 
there's a whole lot of pressure going on. Some of it good, some of it not so good. Here is the last one is the good one, to get him out of there. Lest he be swept away with the punishment. And so we see not only is it destruction, but the angels declare that it is a punishment. And it's also this, this visual image of being swept away, sort of like I did last night after the, the kids were upstairs getting their showers and all of the stuff that was on the floor. Um, they, made, they decorated cupcakes. It was everywhere. And so I sweep it up and throw it out. It's basically God is going to sweep up the trash and toss it out. Horrible image. And yet, he is willing to do this to people who are made in his own image because they have sold themselves to sin. Not only that, but the, the other image that is here is of overthrow. God is going to overthrow the city. The tables are about to be turned upon Sodom. They are about to know true judgment. That's part of what's interesting here is when, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it later, but a foretaste of that. <laughs> when Lot says this wicked thing, they say, who are you to judge? They think that's bad. They're about to experience the true and ultimate judgment themselves. So this is a, a terrifying text in a number of ways. If we go to the end of the story, what we find is Abraham arises the next day and he goes to the same spot where he had talked with God and had bargained for the life of that city and said, you know, if there's so many righteous men, will you spare the city? And he discovers as he watches the smoke rise from the valley that there were not enough righteous men to be found in that city, but God had in fact brought judgment to that city. And... It doesn't say that Abram, Abraham cried, but I, my mind just remembers that, remember that old public service announcement, announcement of the Native American Indian. If you were alive in the 70s, you've seen it. If you weren't, you don't know it. But there's a Native American Indian looking over what's probably New York, back before Giuliani cleaned it up, and he sees the trash, and a tear fills his eyes, and it's a moving sort of thing. That's Abraham. His petitions before God have in, have in some sense uh, not achieved the purpose for which he intended, meaning that the city was not spared. Now, he doesn't know why it wasn't spared. He doesn't know that some people have been removed from the city. All he knows is that God has destroyed the city. He doesn't know what happens to his, his nephew, Lot. So though judgment is horrible... It is God's just response to unrestrained sin. But we also find something else at work in this text. We also find that those who cling to the world will perish with it. We've, I see three different groups of people who are clinging to their sin. And the first are those who cling to, the war, uh, cling to the world by clinging to their sin. These are the men who are outside the door. A lot confronts their sinfulness and their, and their wickedness in, this, in the desire of this act and what they do is they begin to attack Lot in anger. They love their sin, and they do not want to part with it. And so what happens is an interesting transition. They say that, hey, you, you showed up here as basically a green card alien. That's basically the word that they use. 
the, the word for it, resident alien in the Old Testament. Okay? They let him into the city. He was an authorized person to live in that city. He has, and now you, who we showed such kindness to in letting you live in our wonderful city, Sodom, now you judge us? Now you're playing the judge? Who are you to do this? And so they're angry that their sin has been confronted. They refuse to believe that what they want to do is wrong. And that's what happens when we cling to our sin. We love it and we refuse to believe that it is wrong. And I remember that time, that that last year when I was still a non-Christian, how there was no way, nothing that was going to separate me from my sin. (laughs) I, I, I... Sort of knew it was wrong, but I didn't care. I wanted it. And that is the situation these people find themselves in. So some cling to the world by clinging to their sin. Let's shift it a little bit and see the other two groups of people. Now, like Noah, before him, Lot tries uh, to get his family, so to speak, out of the city to save them. Okay, Unlike Noah... He meets resistance. And the first group of resistance comes from his sons-in-law. And we'll remember, as we talked about from the Advent sermons, that in those days it was a far more binding thing to be engaged than it was it is now. Um, so they were considered to be his sons-in-law. But note this for a moment. He's freely offering deliverance. They do not receive it because they cannot or will not, well, actually it's both, believe. We find something very similar to this in Hebrews chapter 4. For the good news or the gospel came to us just as it came to them. And in Hebrews, he's talking about the wilderness generation. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So what, what he's saying is that, in, in Hebrews, is that the wilderness generation received the same message, but because they refused to believe, they did not receive the benefits of that message. And so here, these sons-in-law hear the message about the destruction, but also God's mercy in getting them out of the city. They refuse to believe. And so some people cling to the world through their unbelief. They believe wrongly. That he's joking, that he's jesting, that he's just playing a late night trick on them. Because remember, all this is transpiring at night. The sun has already gone down. He's knocking on their door. Let's get out of here. Let's go. God is is going to destroy the city. And and they're like, right. That's kind of hard for us to perhaps understand in some ways. uh, Because we're used to almost hearing all these horrible threats of things happening and nothing ever happening. Swine flu, anybody? What they talk? Pandemic, like the whole world's going to come unraveled by swine flu. I worked in a hospital. No big deal, unless you got it, and we're one of the very few people that uh, perished by it. But you know, same thing. Bird flu, same thing. I grew up worried about the nuclear holocaust. The holocaust that never happened. Uh, In the seventies, I grew up worried about the coming ice age. And now I hear about the coming global warming. So you understand, we're, we're sort of 
predisposed to, to not heed these messages now because the media kind of just sells us on all these, this fear-mongering and all this kind of stuff. But they didn't have the local news channel feeding this, them this stuff 24-7 like we do. So they hear this, they hear it from their father-in-law, and they probably think he's either drunk or crazy. Their unbelief sentences them to remain for the judgment. What's interesting here is that we also, in chapters 17 and 18, find the same root word, to laugh. And the word joking comes from that word, to laugh. And so what happens with Abraham and Sarah is that they're laughing at God's promise. Can this really be so? There's a, there's a laughter of more of amazement, but here we have the laughter of mocking at God's threat of judgment. So their laughter has a very different quality to it than the laughter of Abraham and Sarah. Jesus predicted the same sort of thing before the final judgment. That sort of life will appear, at all intents and purposes, to be normal. We find in Luke 17, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur uh, rained from heaven and destroyed them all. And so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. We'll get back to Luke 17 in a little bit. Uh, But we also see this uh, actually... Wrong song. Life appears to be normal, and this, this, this talk of a coming judgment seems so far-fetched to most people, and yet it will take place. So that's our second group, those who, who cling to the world through unbelief. Let's go to the third group, and we see that Lot escapes with his wife and escapes with his two daughters. And what's interesting to me as I was kind of reading this, what happened to his servants? Remember when he and Abraham split ways? The problem was they both had such huge flocks and so many servants that the servants were fighting with one another. And so they had to separate. And that's how Lot ended up in Sodom in the first place. And the, the angels say to him, get anyone who, believe, who, who belongs to you. Where are servants? Has he lost them in the process? Has he completely divorced himself from his agricultural work and now has a different kind of work? It's an interesting thought. But nonetheless, it's his wife and his two daughters. But what happens is she loved her life in Sodom. Some cling to the world out of love for the world. Not just their sin, but also for the world. The angel warns them, don't look back. And what does she do? She looks back. And she has turned into a pillar of salt. She looked back because she loved her life in Sodom. She's going to miss her life in Sodom. She had it good in Sodom. She loved her life, and so she lost it. Once again, Luke 17, picking up where we left off. Verse 32 Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Sort of a proverbial saying now. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. 
She thought she was going to lose her life by losing Sodom. But in trying to keep Sodom, she actually lost her life. Jesus in Luke 9 replies to his disciples, uh, actually to someone who asks if they can bury their father. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus lays out some very hard statements for us to deal with that flow out of this whole idea of loving the world. In fact, in 2 Timothy, we find something shocking that takes place. Demas is a guy that had been with Paul for a while. But in 2 Timothy, we learned that Demas has left Paul. Paul says, because he loved the world. He abandoned Paul. And so it's not just something that happened back then. It happened in the days of the early church, and it continues to happen, that we can sometimes love the world. So, so people will refuse to flee the coming wrath, loving their sin or loving the world through their unbelief. Ready for the good news? I hope so, because here it is. Jesus delivers the righteous despite remaining corruption. And I want you to catch that last part. Not only does he save, but despite their remaining corruption. Because that applies to, I think, just about everybody in this room. Don't have it all together. Not even close. Closer than it used to be, but still not there yet. Okay? Lot is a moral man. In fact, as we, as we read in uh, Peter this morning, he is declared to be a righteous man. And yet, look at the character of his righteousness as it was lived out within the context of the city and in this particular event. Light, though, Lot, though he is moral, has not remained untouched by Sodom. First part of that, is that he tried to bargain with the wicked men at his door. He tries to appease them, so to speak. And he says, well, you know, I can't let you have the men because they're under my protection as visitors and the hospitality rights, but I'll let you have my daughters. Uh, Aren't they also under your protection lot? (laughs) And so he, he offers something slightly less sinful, nearly imperceptibly less sinful, does he offer them? He tries to bargain with the wicked. He has, an, he has been touched by Sodom. Not only that, but we see that he lingers. He hesitates. Lot, just like his wife, loved some aspect of his life despite the surrounding sin. He, he was pretty comfortable in Sodom. He was a little distressed about what was going on around him, and yet he was comfortable enough to stay there. That sound kind of like us? You know, I mean, I don't think any of you have kind of headed for the hills because of the sin that surrounds us. We remain, and for good reason. God calls us here. I'm not going to start some strange cult in the mountains. Don't worry. Okay? Not going to happen. But he lingers, he hesitates. And it's like all night long. 
I mean, this, when the sun comes down, the men come there, and he, there, is, there is a little bit of time in, in which uh, he, he bargues, uh, bargains with them, and he's rescued by the angels from them. Um, and, he, and then there's some time you know, given for him to go to his sons-in-laws and get laughed at and come back. But still, eight hours? What's he got? <laughs> is he packing? God's going to destroy the city, and he's, he's playing like, oh, well, yeah, i got a few more hours. Not a problem there. He's, he it reminds me a, a little bit of the jerk, I guess. I don't know. The, the, when, he, when he gets kicked out of his house, and he's like, all I need is this remote control. And then, all I need is this remote control and this chair. All I need is this remote control, this chair, and this pen. Oh, and it, he's just kind of, he's supposed to be kicked out of the house, and he's kind of just wandering around collecting things. I don't know. That's a lot. He doesn't want to let go. And so the angels actually have to seize him and drag him out of the city and say, keep going, because we're going to rain God's wrath upon this city. And so the text says that God was merciful to Lot. God was just as stubborn with his mercy and compassion as the people of Sodom were with their sin. But it doesn't stop there. Here he is. He's just experienced an incredible mercy. And what does he do? Now he starts to bargain with the angels. I might get destroyed if I, you know, have to go to the mountain. Even though the angels have just told him, we're going to withhold execution of God's wrath until you get there. Okay, see the patience again? They waited all night for him. And now they're waiting. They're, gonna, they're promising to wait until he gets to the mountains, and, and he's he's bargaining. It's too far. I might I might be overcome. He begins to bargain with the angels. Interesting. What a contrast with Abraham. Abraham bargained with God, so to speak, when he was interceding on the behalf. But notice that Abraham was interceding on behalf of the city and of the righteous that were contained in that city, that God might not judge it. On, you know, and deliver them. He's bargaining for other people. Lot is bargaining for himself that life will be easier. And so he's not in the same league as Abraham in this respect. It's, it's, the character of what he's doing is very different from what Abraham was doing. Okay, so let's not just take a surface, oh, well, he's just doing it, Abraham. No, it's very different what he's doing here. He recognizes, even as he does this, the favor or grace that he has received. He recognizes the kindness or faithfulness of these uh, men that he doesn't realize probably are angels at this point in time. He is still spiritually lazy. And so, as I kind of sat there looking at this text this week, I asked that question, why did God save this pathetic guy? I mean, if there's a wrong move to make, I mean, he's pretty much made it all the way through this story, right? Isn't he kind of pathetic? Some of the commentators call him a buffoon. You know, they're comparing him to Lot, who does, seems to do, uh, to Abraham, rather, who seems to do everything sort of right in the last few chapters, and this guy can't do anything right, you know? These guys don't even want to stay at his house. He's stumbling, he's bumbling, he seems to be a fool, and yet, 
I can't ask that question without asking the similar question, why does God save us pathetic as we can be? That aspect of remaining corruption. There is still sin that we, we cherish. There are still things that we have a hard time letting go of. We're all a lot more like Lot than we are Adam, uh, Abraham. What is fascinating here, though, is at the very end of this text, we find that after it talks about Abraham, it talks about God. So when God destroys the ci- destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe. Remember, back in the story of Noah, God remembered Noah and did things. So the remembering has that idea of God remembers, and that's a cue, God's about to act. God remembers not Lot, but Abraham, and because he remembers Abraham, he rescues Lot. Lot was delivered in part because of God's promise to Abraham, which points us to the one who was greater than Abraham, Jesus the Messiah, the son of Abraham, who was the fulfillment of the promise, the seed that was spoken of in that promise in, in Genesis chapter 12. He is the one who is greater, and so we are saved because of God's promise to his son. We are saved because of His work for us, that He took the wrath of God in our place. But not only that, as we talked about this morning, He intercedes for us even now at God's right hand. God remembers His Son and rescues us from the coming catastrophe if we believe in that Son. We struggle with our remaining corruption. We hem and we haw at times. We take you know, two steps forward and three steps back. We can be very passive in this process of sanctification, expecting God to just remove temptation from our heart as opposed to us putting our sin to death. Through our faith, sorry, rather, though our faith and our sanctification and our love for God are imperfect, they still exist. When the text in Second Peter says that Lot was righteous, he had a love for God. He had a faith in God. He was partially sanctified. And that's what his wife did have. There was no presence of faith. There was no presence of love for God. There was no presence of sanctification in her life. That's why she perishes and he is redeemed. There are times when our faith is going to ebb and flow and stronger, weaker. doesn't matter how strong it is. What matters is that the one that our faith is in is strong. And he is, as one of the new songs says, mighty to save. 
And he saves his people. He keeps and preserves his people, though we continue to stumble about like buffoons with our sin. And so from this text we find that God is both just to deliver and just to judge. He is just to judge because all people are sinners. And not only that, they love it. You don't find any unregenerate people saying, man, I sin a lot and I hate it. They like their sin. But He is also just to deliver because Jesus bore our wrath. He bore it. And so who are we like when we look at the story? Are you sort of more like the sons-in-law who don't believe anything bad's going to happen? That it's all a big joke? Are you more like the men of Sodom who just are sold, to the, sold their souls to their sin? Are you sort of more like Lot's wife who loves the world and everything in it? Or are you like Lot? Do you struggle with your sin? You love God, but there are other days when you love something more and you struggle. We cannot change ourselves. But the one who is greater than Abraham also has the power to change our hearts. And so, instead of our sin crying out to him, let us cry out to him in repentance. Because just as he hears the cry of sin, he also hears the cry of repentance. Let's pray. Father, a... uh, Difficult subject at times for us to deal with because it seems like we're pointing our finger at someone else as opposed to being just honest about what your, your word says. And so we acknowledge that you have faithfully warned all of humanity repeatedly through your word about your character and about our sin and how they interact in judgment. Thankfully, you have just as often pointed out, just even in this own text, that you, you, you or yourself are the Savior who shows mercy and compassion towards those who are united to your Son by faith. So even though many of us have walked with you for years, we, all of us still struggle with sin. Some of it more culturally acceptable than others, but we all struggle with sin. And so we still need grace. And so I ask that you would continue to show us mercy and to preserve us because of Christ. And may we fix our eyes on him who is the author and perfecter of our faith. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.